Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 1, Pilot. Cataclysmic events between 2057 and 2069 came to a head. In that final year, that fateful year, the world, my world, came to an end. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. I have no clear memory of what happened, when the bombs fell, if they even fell at all. Things happened so quickly and, well, I'm an old man. But this feels deeper than the forgetfulness that comes with aging. There are places where my mind slips, like sand through fingers. Is it the onset of dementia? The immediacy with which things happened? Or has someone tampered with my mind? The things I do remember, I remember clearly. I was the Israeli government's special envoy to the United Nations. In those final years, the people of Earth faced many trials. Scarcity of resources, plagues, poverty, famine, and despair. Hanging above all our heads was a scimitar of nuclear war. The powers of the Earth, great and small, had fallen into several factions, each armed with its own doomsday arsenal. Every side had demands. There were always more demands. I worked tirelessly with the other international representatives day and night, trying in vain to negotiate through one crisis after the other. In the end, all efforts at diplomacy failed. The peace process failed. We all failed. I remember, a silence fell upon the UN Assembly when we received word the missiles had launched. And not just one missile. All of them. No one seemed ready to admit who launched theirs first, but that was academic by then. My attaché, Mr. Roth, told me I needed to evacuate to the UN bunker. I knew he was right, but I had a mission first. An appointment with a Persian. Something I should have taken care of long before. I resolved my affairs and made to return to the bunker. This is when things get confused. I recall running down a corridor, then a sensation of numbness, blackness. I believe I was blindfolded. I remember rough hands and a sharp needle in my neck. And suddenly, I woke up. I don't know how much later. I found myself in an unfamiliar chamber. There were chairs built in the wall, like those on a roller coaster. I was already strapped in. There were others there as well. Some people I knew. Others I did not. Then, the rumble of engines. A monotone electronic voice ordered passengers to strap themselves into the ergonomic chairs located against the wall. I asked the woman next to me, the beautiful, ginger-haired UK ambassador to the UN, where are we going? 
one thing I'll never forget. Her familiar, charming face twisted into abject fear. She spoke with a delicate, Celtic tone. Don't you know, General Castro? Haven't you been informed? No, I told her. Where? Where? Underground. She looked away from me down to the diamond engagement ring hanging from a St. Christopher medal around her neck. We're going underground. Then came the discernible sound of hydraulics coming to life. The rush of air against our faces. A feeling like the world dropped out from under us, as if we were plunging into the void. Machines whirred and hydraulics gasped as the porcelain tank rose quickly, then fell suddenly. That's it. Just a little more, said Dr. Ganaya. Now, extract the lid from the coffin. A mix of gases and vaporized fluid filled the laboratory. The olive-skinned physician walked forward. She hovered over the frost-covered glass, peering into the chamber where General Castro lay, his body still his face peaceful. There, said the Asian woman behind Ganaya. All levels are reading as normal, doctor. Thank you, replied the physician. Well done, Chang. Heart rate, lung, liver, and kidney functions appear to be normal, or within normal parameters for a man his age, Chang interrupted. Better than that, Ganaya said. You must remember... He was over 60 when he went into stasis. That was 43 years ago, Chang finished for Ganaya. Yes. The doctor hid her frustration. Since they started working together several months ago, Dr. Ganaya was routinely irritated by the way the engineer predicted what she would say, interrupted her, and finished her thoughts. He's one of the original specimens, Ganaya said softly. Voluntary? asked Cheng. Negative. General Castro's situation was unique. Ganaya paused for a long moment, cautiously considering how much she should say, or how much she was allowed to say. Okay, she continued. We can remove the cryopipettes and slowly, slowly let the gas taper off. Dr. Ganaya, there was a sense of alarm in Cheng's voice. There appears to be an anomaly. What anomaly? Ganaya glanced up and down the antiquated medical equipment and biometric controls. Damn it. His blood sugar is spiking, circulation diminishing. We're losing him, said Chang. His heart rate. Shut up a minute. Ganaya raised her voice, uncharacteristically. I'm trying to think. Let me... There. Now, let the pressure off. I can't, Chang started to say. The circuitry inside the coffin. Damn your circuitry, Chang. He's alive, and we're going to keep him that way. Now retract the pipettes and let the pressure off, or I'm pulling the plug on your machines. His heart rate is... He's coming back to us, said Ganaya. Come on. Come on, General Castro. You're going to be all right. Chang studied the technical readouts on her monitors and engineering equipment. He's just like the rest, she said. Comatose, or brain dead, or... 
Ganaya ignored the engineer. Can you hear me? General? General Benjamin Castro's tired, ringed eyes opened slowly. Ugh. Where? Castro's voice sounded strangled. Raw. How? Careful, General Castro. Ganaya helped the patient, her patient, lean forward in the graphene-laced cocoon. Careful, she said again, reassuring the older man. I don't believe it, said Chang. He... Ugh. I was in a room, Kasha recalled. A machine. Some transport. And... Go easy. Everything will be explained in time. My name is Dr. Ganaya, and this is Chang. Ganaya? General Castro gazed on the Middle Eastern woman. Although her expression was serious, there was a far away, too familiar beauty the general did not expect. Persian? Well, my father was from Iran, the doctor said, but that's not important right now. Where are the others? Castro asked. From the UN. Phoenix law enforcement officer Leonard McGillicuddy was at the end of his first patrol in the early hours of the morning when he received orders directly from the Shadow Council. This was unusual. Only leadership and administration had direct contact with the faceless bureaucrats who served as ad hoc government for the Phoenix Project. McGillicuddy was informed that the council had consulted the central processor, the master computer that made decisions and guided the destinies of the survivors in the underground project. After almost 43 years underground, the central processor had authorized a mission to explore the surface, to see what was left on Earth, to see if any life still existed. A week earlier, McGillicuddy's commanding officer, the Colonel of Law Enforcement Operations, had hinted to him that something big was coming. She spoke generally and vaguely about the central processor selecting a team of qualified citizens to explore the surface. Shadow Council asked me about safety and security for the mission, Colonel Dana Marsh told her junior officer confidentially. Someone has to protect the scientists and explorers from whatever dangers are up there. McGillicuddy had no clue the colonel meant him. He expected that as a senior officer, Marsh would be the one to lead the expedition. Going up top, to a ravaged planet, with no guarantees of survival, probably sounded horrifying to some, but to McGillicuddy, or Cuddy to those who knew him, it was exciting. It represented an opportunity. Cuddy had spent his whole life, 43 years, living underground. That was 43 years too long. If it was up to him, Cuddy would have volunteered. He would have left the Phoenix Project as soon as Marsh mentioned the mission. He could tell from the colonel's expression she knew he wanted action. Real action. That was probably why she didn't say any more. She couldn't. Confidentiality was part of the protocol. The Shadow Council ordered McGillicuddy to break patrol and rally one of the central processor's selections, a scientist by the name of Dr. John Bath. It was McGillicuddy's responsibility to escort Bath to the lab for their first briefing.
The door to their cell-like apartment chimed. Mike Helms rolled out of bed and attempted to rouse his longtime roommate, John Bath. John, Mike said urgently, his voice pinched and nasal. Wake up. There's some men here to see you. Bath sat on the edge of the bed, rubbing sleep out of his eyes. Ugh. Who are they? Bath asked, irritated by the smell of chemicals on his roommate. I don't know, Mike replied. He pressed the blue view button on the keypad by the door. The pinhole surveillance monitor outside activated. Helms glimpsed Major McGillicuddy, a tall, black man in a Law Division uniform. This guy looks official. Dr. Bath dressed quickly. He had spent most of the previous evening in the linguistics lab, where students worked diligently on a cryptogram. It was a useless but intriguing enterprise. Going through the motions, trying to find ways to improve communication between lower classes of citizens in the underground and the central processor. The idea was that if the lower classes could speak directly to the central processor with no intermediaries, that is, speak to it in its own coded language, they would have a voice. They would be able to convince the computer to make decisions that benefited all, not just the select few. Dr. Bath would have liked to take credit for devising the cryptogram and the methodology for communication with the central processor, but the idea actually came from one of his former students. Harumi Gale was an 18-year-old prodigy, a scientist working towards her PhD on the intersection between neuropsychology and biology. Bath was proud of her. Perhaps he was too fond of Harumi, who was the only person he spent much time with other than Mike, who was almost like a brother. Mike was a nice enough guy, but his duties in the pest control unit produced persistent body odor and untenable chemical smells. As a result, Dr. Bath spent little time in their compartment. Okay, Mike. Bath nodded. Go ahead. Open it. Mike pressed the button, opening the compartment door. Are you Dr. Bath? Major McGillicuddy entered the room without being invited inside. His presence dominated the narrow space. What do you want? Bath asked. I'm Major Leonard McGillicuddy, Phoenix Law Division. You've been summoned to the lab, Dr. Bath. I'm here to escort you downstairs. The lab? What for? Yeah, Mike lingered anxiously. What for? People go down there and they don't come back. Dr. Bath turned to his roommate. Shut up, Mike. The law enforcement officer glanced around the room, obviously making mental notes, marking Bath and Helms' living quarters, their few possessions. Bath had seen the look too many times. He knew McGillicuddy was making up his mind about them, trying to discern some law they violated, some way he could punish them. I don't know. McGillicuddy looked down at Bath, and if I did, I wouldn't say. It's confidential. Now get your things, doctor. Dr. Bath combed his hands through his disheveled orange hair. Look, he said, did I do something? I have a right to know. Yeah, the major grinned smugly. You won the lottery, doc. Now let's go. Bath reluctantly complied with the towering law enforcement officer. As he followed McGillicuddy out of the compartment, he couldn't help but mutter under his breath, Fascist. Rusting laboratory doors retracted like an ancient vault being forced open. Dr. Kanaya and Chang turned. 
A sophisticated blonde woman sauntered into the laboratory. General Castro noted how, unlike the physician and engineer, the woman walking toward him wore colorful clothing. A broad, white stripe ran vertically from the nape of her neck to the elevated hemline above her knee. She was athletic, her skin tan polished. Congratulations, General Castro. I'm glad to see you're awake. General Castro groaned. He tried to lean forward, then braced himself. I can't feel my legs. A side effect of the cryostasis, said Dr. Ganaya. The circuitry overloaded the plasma pipettes in his lower extremities. Castro glared at Ganaya and Chang. What the hell does that mean? He's crippled, Chang said, sullenly, without facing the general. We failed to return him from cryosleep unscathed. The blonde woman smiled broadly, flashing perfect white teeth. I wouldn't call this a failure. Do you know who this is, Chang? In the last century, Benjamin Castro was Israel's premier general, strategic operative, and master of intelligence. He may not be able to walk, but it's his mind and leadership the council wants, and that's what they're going to get. Do you understand? Castro shifted uncomfortably. The last century? Dr. Ganaya leaned forward to steady the general. Help me get him up, she said. Castro groaned. You may feel disorientation, a sense of stiffness, the doctor said. That's normal. None of this is normal. Chang was less enthusiastic about General Castro's survival, or his expertise. Ignoring the others, the engineer turned to the damaged machines, power supplies, and cannibalized technology. The coffin, she murmured. The electrodes. Ruined. General Castro, the blonde introduced herself. My apologies. I'm Danielle Devenu. It's a pleasure, truly. A great honor. Sure, Castro replied. Devenu turned to Ganaya, a plucked eyebrow arched. It was obvious she was in charge. If we're lucky, and the nerves of the spine aren't damaged, Ganaya reported, we may be able to introduce stem cells, and through gene therapy, help him regain feeling, maybe even mobility, in his extremities. Castro shook his fist between them. Somebody better explain this, he said. Then, the vault doors opened behind them. Castro, Ganaya, Chang, and Devenu watched Major McGillicuddy and Dr. Bath enter the laboratory. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Bath insisted, as if he had been a part of the conversation all along. Somebody explain to me what the hell I'm doing here. I've heard about what goes on in your so-called laboratory. Now, Major McGillicuddy placed a hand on Bath's shoulder. Shut up. He ordered and steered his charge to the center of the lab. Devenu went to greet them. Ah, Dr. Bath. Major McGillicuddy, she said. I'm sorry we couldn't wait for you to begin. Good to see you too, Devenu, the Major said. He recognized her from her work in public relations with the Shadow Council. He was unsure what her official role was, but he trusted her. Then he turned and glanced over at the crippled man at the edge of the coffin. He recognized him from video footage on military tactics and data reels on diplomacy. Wait, he said. Is that General Benjamin Castro? It is, Ganaya answered. Jesus, he doesn't look a day over 60. Castro hesitated. Unable to walk, he leaned. 
As with the others in the room, there was something familiar about the tall, athletic law enforcement officer. This sense of recognition was beginning to disturb the general. Do we know each other? Castro asked cautiously. Uh, sorry, General. Major McGillicuddy walked forward to shake the general's hand. He was impressed with the older man's forceful grip. Uh, my father was the head of security for the UN. You may have known him. They called him Mac. Castro searched for a memory. Doesn't ring a bell. He hesitated. In fact... The general paused. He watched Dr. Ganaya produce a stethoscope. She listened to the general's life signs without the aid of computers or equipment. His memory is impaired, Ganaya said. It may be a result of removing him prematurely. Chang interjected. The machines in process were designed to be improved over time. Minimum threshold was 100 years. We removed him too soon. What's too soon? Castro looked at Chang, then Ganaya. What does that mean? Devenu walked closer to the general. General Castro, Benjamin. She softened her tone further. I'll try to explain. Try to explain? Dr. Bath interrupted. I want to hear this. Explain what the hell we're doing here. Very well, Dr. Bath. Devenu positioned herself in the center of the group. As if she had practiced cautiously for this moment, she spoke. After the destruction of the United Nations headquarters in New York City, several terrorist attacks and military responses coincided around the globe. Nuclear production centers and silos were captured. A decision was made to rescue what high-level ministers, ambassadors, and survivors could be protected. Those in New York were transported here. Dr. Bath let out an exasperated sigh. He was annoyed by their pretense. Just tell him, Bath insisted. He turned to the general. You're, well, we're in an underground facility. You were so special, you got to survive, while the rest of the world suffered falling bombs, nuclear winter, and the outright destruction of the planet. Congratulations. Who are you? Castro asked the orange-haired man. Uh, sorry. John Bath, professor of neuropsychology, linguistics, and biology. You are a doctor of all of these things? Castro was surprised at the other man's credentials and the arrogance with which he mentioned them. Well, there's not much to do in the Phoenix Project besides accumulate degrees or harass the population. Bath glanced at Major McGillicuddy. It was obvious to all there that Bath disliked authority and was trying to get a rise out of the law enforcement officer. From the expression on the Major's face, it was just a question of how much more he was going to take. Castro ignored Bath's comment. How many survivors? he asked. Well, 3,000 or so in the so-called Phoenix facility, Bath said give or take the mortality of parents, the survival of offspring. We've contained most diseases, Ganiah added with a sense of great accomplishment. Well, she paused, looking down, mostly. Castro shifted his weight. Ganiah braced him. Eyes like black pools searched. Could she sense his resistance? His hesitation at being consoled by the descendant of his country's enemies? For centuries, their peoples were sworn enemies, and yet she revived him, cared for him, as if her life depended on it. Hmm. Three thousand survivors, General Castro said reluctantly. Dr. Bath is correct, Devenu explained. 
there were approximately 3,000 survivors from the attacks in New York, New Jersey, and the outlying boroughs. Survival underground has not been easy. We do the best we can with ancient technology, said Chang. Instructions were given to the central processor for those who established the project. So, Castro asked, if these 3,000 were chosen to survive based on their connections, Bath interrupted, qualities, Castro glared at the younger man. He didn't know the scientist well enough yet to trust him, but he knew he didn't like being interrupted, especially when he was the proverbial fish out of water, trying to ascertain what his next move was, what they wanted from him, and what he was capable of doing. How is it all of you came to be here? Well, Major McGillicuddy said, I was born here. Like I said, General, my father was a head of security for the United Nations. He was on site at the time of the attacks. He actually set up the first law enforcement detachment underground. He set up an authoritarian police state, is what you mean. Bath needled the major. Shut your mouth, Bath, or I'll shut it for you. Castro looked at Bath for a similar explanation. What, me? Bath looked surprised. This was not an environment in which he was used to dealing. Dr. Bath was used to working with other professors, teaching students. He was used to being the smartest or most important person in the room. Well, Bath said, not that it matters, but my mother was the youngest UK ambassador to the UN. He hated the way this sounded, like he was bragging. The truth was, Dr. Bath knew of his mother's work, but long wrestled with the fact that the peace process, negotiations and manipulations, had failed. Your mother. Castro ran the back of his hand across firm whiskers that seemed frozen in place. She was... her red hair, like yours? I... I remember her. I was in the transport with her. And your father, Dyramid. Yes? A stony, blank expression cut itself into Bath's otherwise soft features. How did you know that? Don't you know? Castro shrugged. Didn't he ever tell you? Dyramid Bath was in the UK Royal Air Force. I rescued him from a Lebanese prison after a covert action gone wrong. He was tortured, brutalized. I brought him back to the UK. Is he... Dr. Bath shook his head. The others could see he was disturbed, vulnerable. He's... he's gone. That's right, Devenu interjected. Colonel Bath disappeared. Somehow, he left the Phoenix Project, the underground. That's never been confirmed, Major McGillicuddy objected. Because it didn't happen, said Bath. He pointed at the law enforcement officer but spoke to Devenu. You know as well as I do there was a cover-up. He pissed somebody off, and the computer, oh, excuse me, the central processor, decided he had to be taken out. Major McGillicuddy stepped closer to Dr. Bath. Are you suggesting that... Gentlemen, Devenu raised her hands between Bath and the Major. This is not what we're here for. Well, what are we here for? Bath asked. Yes. <clears throat> General Castro cleared his throat and shook off grogginess. When he spoke, there was a directness, a severity to his tone. What are we here for? Why was I put in deep freeze, or whatever you want to call it? What do you want from me? Devenu nodded. General Castro, gentlemen, Dr. Kanaya, Miss Chang. Human 
food, and other resources in the Phoenix Project are diminishing. There is unrest among parts of our population. Your Shadow Council consulted the Central Processor, and... Bath interrupted. <laughs> Not my Shadow Council. Devenu continued, ignoring Dr. Bath. The Central Processor selected this group to collaborate on a special exploration of the surface. Ganaya stepped forward, inserting herself between Devenu and General Castro. How are we to do that? she asked. Dr. Bath is right. By all accounts, the Earth is uninhabitable. Nuclear fallout, poisonous gas, depleted ozone, and corrupted plant life. The carbon monoxide levels alone must be unbreathable. Devenu turned to Dr. Ganaya, pausing a moment. You are in a unique position having been selected for this venture, Dr. Ganaya. Neither the Shadow Council nor their consultants and advisors thought this through hastily. Wait, Dr. Bath held up his hands. You're saying I've been selected to all of you, Devenu continued. Dr. Ganaya, as the chief physician in the Phoenix Project's hospital, you are the obvious medical expert for the team. Chang, your expertise as a physicist and engineer with knowledge of ancient technology make you critical to this mission. Dr. Bath, your position as a hyper-educated member of the academic intelligentsia qualifies you to observe and advise. Major McGillicuddy. Call me Cuddy, the Major said. He was eager to get through the formalities and proceed to the next stage of their assignment. General Castro studied the law enforcement officer. He sensed they shared a common discipline in their efforts to preserve and protect others. Cuddy, said Devenu, you've been assigned to provide investigatory and protection services to the mission. And General Castro, the central processor identified you as the best, most capable survivor to lead this group. You have experience on the battlefield, knowledge of the area, and history with the events that, pardon the expression, ended the world as we know it. Castro looked at each of them, then down at his legs. Here he was, a man of action, resurrected in an underground facility populated by the ignorant, unworldly offspring of the last survivors before the end of everything. Irony fought it out with the racing metaphors and broken synapses in his head. Forgive me, dear, said General Castro, but with all due respect, how the hell am I supposed to lead this group at my age without functional legs? This must be a joke, said Bath. Without much more than an introduction, General Castro could tell Dr. John Bath was an academic hindered by his claustrophobic underground environment. The Phoenix Project limited Bath's ability to explore the world in any way other than in his mind. If this was the case, why wasn't Bath more enthusiastic about being chosen for the assignment? Why was he so sarcastic, intent on rejecting the others? Was there conflict between academics and the establishment, or was it something more personal? Devenu grinned. General Castro had seen the look before. He knew the project leader had her own doubts. She was either unwilling or unable to describe them openly. Devenu intrigued the general. As with Dr. Ganaya, there was something familiar about her. A beautiful blonde woman in her late twenties, who carried herself with the intelligence and grace of someone much older. It would have been impossible for the general to have met someone so young on the surface, unless she too was cryogenically preserved and revived. Dr. Chang, Devenu said, 
if you would please. Aftermath, a fire pit creative group production. Based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.